Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Welcome back to another episode. I feel blessed and absolutely love connecting with you beautiful superhumans. And whether it's via this podcast or on social media, where many of you have given me feedback on this show, it's a privilege to share what I learned with you. And knowing that it may make a difference and elevate your lives brings me such joy. I am grateful for you. Today, I cover a topic, the understanding of which I consider fundamental for thriving, human behavior and interpersonal relationships. Are you tired of guessing what others are really thinking? Would you like to be able to read people in every situation, whether in person or on screen or in writing? If your answer is yes, then this episode is for you. Today's guest, Dr. David J. Lieberman, is a renowned psychotherapist and a leading voice in the fields of human behavior and interpersonal relationships. David is the author of 11 books, including the New York Times bestsellers, Get Anyone to Do Anything and Never Be Lied to Again, which have been translated into 27 languages and sold millions of copies. He has trained personnel of the U.S. military, the CIA, the FBI, and the NSA, and he teaches government negotiators, mental health professionals, and Fortune 100 executives. I am completely enthralled with his latest book, Mind Reader, the new science of deciphering what people really think, what they really want, and who they really are. I consider it essential reading for navigating daily communications and mastering high-stakes negotiations. In Mind Reader, David shows us how we can understand the subtext of a situation and takes reading people to a whole new level. Drawing on the latest research in the science of psycholinguistics, the cues embedded in spoken and written speech, David will share with us how to apply his cutting-edge methods to everyday situations, including how to determine whether someone is lying, finding out whether a potential hire, dating app match, or new babysitter as trustworthy or hiding something, as well as detecting personality disorders. David's insights and tools are truly invaluable to help us be safer, happier, and more successful in life. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. David, it's such a pleasure to connect with you. Thank you for being a guest on the Superhumanized podcast and a warm welcome to you. Thank you, Ariane. It's my pleasure. You know, what really struck me when I did a deep dive into your world is you are prolific in every sense. You're a really prolific writer. You published, I think, 11 books and it's the 12th that's coming out right now, correct? I think that's right. Yeah. And, and you had New York <laughs> My Times. mother would know, but I'm, I, it sounds about right. <laughs> Mamas always know that's true. Right. 
Yeah, so many books, who keeps counting, right? It's just amazing. You've had New York Times bestsellers and really super interesting and intriguing titles. Find out who's normal, who's not. Make peace with everyone. Never to be lied to again. How to change anyone. All these topics are really immensely fascinating to me. And I know to tons of people out there as well, obviously, you're very successful in what you do. How do you decide which topic you want to write about? What an interesting question. So I write what about fascinates me. And human nature is something that's always fascinated me. Uh, and I found that you no know, matter how much people worked on themselves, no matter how many books on personal development and self-improvement they read, if there were people out there who were taking advantage of them, manipulating them, lying to them, not being honest with them, it was very hard to move forward in your lives. So I shifted a little bit more towards the area of interpersonal relationships, because I think that the quality of our relationships and the quality of our emotional health go hand in hand. And if you're able to help people to improve communication, relationships, and end conflicts, feuds, estrangements, you're going to just improve the quality of their lives overall. 100%. I mean, the way we emotionally feel, the way our mind is affected affects us physically. This is science nowadays. We know that it can shorten life or enhance and lengthen lifespan. So it's really a fundamental of creating the optimal human experience, which we're all about here at Superhumanize. And in your new book, Mind Reader, the new science of deciphering what people really think, what they really want, and who they really are, you talk about how we can discover how someone really thinks, even if their thoughts are deeply hidden in their subconscious mind, and no matter how they may act or what they actually say. Can you explain the basic philosophy behind this to us, please? Sure. So in the old days, there are many techniques, and some of which I've developed myself, on reading people using body language and certain signs and signals. But the way communication has changed so rapidly, human nature hasn't changed, but communication has changed, whether it's Twitter, and now with COVID, a lot of correspondence and communication takes place where you're not even in the same room as the other person. You need more sophisticated techniques. So through a field called psycholinguistics, which is a branch of linguistics and psychology, and it's part of the field of the cognitive sciences, is that you're able to see how our everyday thoughts, feelings, and attitudes are reflected in the words that we use. And mm -hmm. how people express themselves reveals a great deal about their relationships, whether they're prone to depression, their attitudes, their values, and you unearth a great deal about their psyche simply from how they express themselves. Mm. And what you just said is, is, of course, such an important part of how our daily life and communications have developed, especially in the last two and a half years, the Zoom calls or the phone calls or communicating via social media. So when we can't read the body language that easily, can you share maybe a couple of examples from your book? Also, what type of words are very important to actually be mindful of and be aware yeah. of? Terrific. So let's jump right into it. And there, one of the reasons why this book has gotten so much attention is because they're not one-trick ponies. They don't rely on just, if the person says this, then it always means that. If they say that, none of that nonsense. And I want to encourage listeners to know that you want to look for a pattern of syntax. You don't want to isolate out just one thing that the person says and hang your hat on that. There's a lot that goes into the psychological soup. But for example, we know that 
A person who uses the personal pronoun such as I, me, or my is more inclined to believe what it is that they're saying and take responsibility or ownership of their words. So for example, a person says, I really like your presentation, or I loved what you said in the meeting. That's quite different than if they said, nice presentation, or it looks like you did a lot of research. Now, even though they're communicating largely the same overt message, covertly, there's a greater likelihood that they mean what they're saying when they include the pronoun I in that sentence. And of course, you don't want to rely on just one word, but when you've got five, six, seven markers in one sentence, then you can clearly get a better picture. That makes total sense. And once you become aware of this, this is also what's so amazing about your book. These are things you can implement into your daily life, your relationships, your stealing very easily. You also teach some of the methods in your books to FBI's Elite Behavior Analysis Unit, the CIA, the NSA. Is there anything that has surprised you over the years that obviously highly trained individuals such as these have not yet been aware of prior to actually being exposed to you and taught by you and something that may have come up quite a few times? That's a great question. So I would say what I find most surprising is which with each class or each generation, I see that the ability to read basic body language and just get a general sense of where the person's coming from is diminishing. Because in the old days, there's a lot of face-to-face, -face, literally face-to-face, -face, not this face-to-face -face communication. And now when a lot of communication and the people growing up today, communication takes place over Twitter, Instagram, so all these types of social media, text, the ability to read just people, not just even body language, just to get a general sense. You walk into a room and you can sort of get a sense for the energy or how someone's feeling from how their disposition. Today, that's becoming less and less intuitive. So some of these basics have to be taught in addition to the more sophisticated techniques. Wow. Yes. And interesting that this also affects people who are highly specialized actually in profiling others and assessing how somebody else comes across. Something that I find really important in relation to our daily lives is how we can actually assess whether it's a situation where we're in a conversation with a new person or we're in a new relationship and how to actually assess whether this communication, this connection is going our way or not, and whether the other who we're in communication with is just going through the motions, being polite, or really interested and engaged with us. Can you tell us about that, David? Sure. There's a wealth to uncover there. But again, we'll just take sort of one surface layer snippet and we'll look again at pronouns. And the book is obviously much more than pronouns, but it just reveals so much information, often information that's not always intended. So let's say, for example, Jack and Jill are walking out of the restaurant at the end of a first date, and Jill turns to Jack and says, where did we park our car now? Or where did we park the car? An innocent question, but when she uses the word we rather than where did you park the car, it tells us she is already begin beginning to identify with her 
and Jack as a couple. She sees them as a unit. If that was not a good first date, there's no way, no how she would say, where did we park our car or the car? Our car is even more telling because you've got our instead of the. It would be, where'd you park the car? Let's get going and so on. Now, obviously if it's Jack's car and she says, where'd you park the car? It doesn't mean that she doesn't like him. But when we use language of affinity, we and us, it tells us that this person sees the two of them as a unit. And again, it's just one clue, but when you put five, six, seven, eight together in a single sentence, it can tell you very definitively whether someone's interested or not, whether they're lying or not, whether they're motivated or not, and so on. And also other things that you mentioned in your book, you actually describe how feelings of anger, even anxiety leak through what we would commonly think are benign words and body language. And I think that's also so crucial in order to be able to assess how is the other truly feeling towards us. What are some of the signs that we can decode of these types of hidden so-called negative emotions to learn about how people truly feel about us, especially with anger or anxiety? So let's take a look at two types of words, and one is qualifiers, and the other are retractors. Qualifiers are like words, I think, I wonder, I guess, maybe, and we all use them. If we don't use them, by the way, you've got a different issue if somebody never uses them, but we all use them when we're not sure about ourselves. And then we have retractors that is meant to take back what we just said, words like although, however, nevertheless, and so on. If you ask yourself, how might somebody use, the, how might their syntax sound if they're very anxious? And so what the research shows is they have a higher level of both qualifiers and retractors. So for example, they would the speech would sound something like, I think this would be okay, but I don't know. Or I guess maybe that might make sense, although, and so on. They are full, or you could probably think to yourself right now, people you already know that speak like this. Oh, yes. My, myself included. I've been, <laughs> I'm pretty good now, but I had been dealing up to until probably last year pretty regularly with anxiety. It was just a lifelong thing for me. I know where it stems from. A lot of these root causes are healed or integrated now, but I completely recognize, recognize myself in these speech patterns. Not so much so nowadays, but yes, that would be exactly how I speak. And even today, when I'm a little out of balance and I'm then, of course, still grappling with these old behaviors or reactions, patterns, triggers, that's exactly how I speak. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And what's so nice is that it allows, as you just noted, to be able to know ourselves better. And, you know, the book is also a stealth health, self-help book because mm -hmm. when you're able to better understand people, that includes ourselves. And so when we use these patterns of language, what's interesting is that someone can come across seemingly very definitive and sure of themselves, but when you've got a high frequency of qualifiers and retractors, then you know that they're not really as confident as they portray themselves to be. Super interesting. And you mentioned something before that if somebody doesn't use any of these at all, it's a completely different problem. What would that be? And again, it's important to remind listeners that you want to look for a pattern, not just one other times when we're going to feel more anxious. It doesn't necessarily qualify as a trait, but rather a state, how the person is feeling in the moment. But a person who doesn't use qualifiers at all or, uh, or retractors can be very dogmatic and very um, unyielding. And their speech pattern is very definitive. We're going to do this and that. 
There's no unless, there's no qualifiers, there's no retractors. Someone like that who has, a again, a pattern of speech like that, it can border on a personality disorder and something to pay strong attention to. Great point and very good to know. David, in your book, you say something really interesting. The quote is, uh, people do not seem to realize that their opinion of the world is also a confession of character. Can you expand yeah. a little bit on that? Sure. It's so interesting. The research shows what is already so intuitive to many of us. And that is that how we see the world is a reflection of how we see ourselves, but more deeply, sometimes of our own emotional health. And the findings show, for example, that the more benevolent, the more kind, the more compassionate we see other people, it parallels with our own emotional health. When we denigrate the world around us, when we look at other people harshly, and we're very quick to put things into categories and boxes and labels because the ego needs to define everything in order to give the illusion of security, all it does is give us a window into that person's own insecurity. So for example, just pull back the lens, You know, who is going to likely be more confident and more secure? A person who types into a search engine, for example, what's the best investment to make? Or is Bitcoin a good investment versus Bitcoin is going to go up 100% in the next two months? The person who types in the more definitive, clear, right, search is likely someone who feels more anxious than less anxious because the person who feels more secure is able to ask questions they're able to observe the person who is less secure again needs to categorize they need to label they need to condemn they need to denigrate and mm -hmm. that only that tells us not only what they see but who is looking and so i know large part of the beautiful audience of superhumans that we have here at this podcast are not only seeking to understand the world better, and they also want to better themselves. So when we observe something like that within ourselves, where can we start to alleviate that or get into a little bit different patterns of how we categorize the world and thus also treat ourselves in a certain way? So the first thing is to recognize why it is what we're doing. So when you observe, you're actually becoming, you're able to gain information. So when we don't observe, it means that we are not seeing what is, but through what's called cognitive biases, we're seeing a projection of our own insecurities, our own wants, our own needs. When you look at somebody, when you see somebody, we're so quick to just say, oh, that's that kind of person. We know, we think we know everything about them. But what that does is it makes us not only less emotionally healthy, but moves us further away from reality. Because while we are condemning, while we're judging, we're never seeing. What you can't label something and at the same time observe it. So the first thing is to become more aware that we're never often too present because the ego tells us that false self tells us that if unless you label, unless you define, unless it, it, it can't deal with uncertainty, it needs to quantify everything, unless you, then you're not going to be safe. But the mm -hmm. truth is, the more we project our own stuff onto reality, the less secure we are because it's not real. It's a distortion. It's only a projection of ourselves. So the first thing is to become aware of just how little we're actually observing and quick to label and to ju judge and to condemn. And then take a step back and ask yourself, can I just observe without deciding? Can I just see what is without labeling? And when you're able to do that, you're going to find a 
greater ability to be more present, to be more mindful, and that's when you have real connection. Beautiful, David. And I think for me, that also ties in with when we think about judgment, judgment also for me is always connected to attachment. We're attached to these labels. We're attached to the opinions. We're attached to whatever we build, the constructs that we build for our ego to feel more secure. And if you look at the Buddhist tradition, you know, all suffering comes from attachment and also in a lot of different mindfulness philosophies and practices. It is about stepping into the observer mode and out of the reactive mode that gets us to this place where there's just a heightened sense of well-being, and that's achieved by being non-attached. That's right. Beautifully said. And I was just speaking about this idea earlier today, and the question is about workplace violence, and you hear about people, quote-unquote, snapping. And what I explained was that people don't just snap. Mm. There are always signs and signals, but we don't pay attention to them. And as you said, people will see what they want to see. And if we were to look and really observe, we would see much more than we do now. And what I tell people is one of the reasons why this book has gotten so much attention is because an eight-year-old can learn the techniques, but it's sort of, it is something called the reticular activating system, which is responsible. It's like an antenna of sorts. Maybe you've had the experience of buying a new car or getting a new outfit or, and you begin to see those things on the road or on people getting new glasses, whatever it is, they come into your sphere only because you're paying attention to it. And that's a reticular activating system. That's what it does. By once you are aware of these things, once you know what to look for, it's just that you're able to, everything comes into your purview and with new eyes. We don't need to spend decades learning how to do something, once you already do it, once it's on your quote unquote radar, you're going to begin to see everything that you really need to see, whether someone is being honest and trustworthy and so on, and certainly whether or not somebody's a danger to yourself or to loved ones. Excellent. And when you're speaking about someone becoming a danger to themselves or others, in your book, you actually talk about a few red flag warning signs. Can you give us a couple of examples of this? Sure. So one of the most important things to pay or to remind ourselves of, again, is that there are always signs, there are always signals, there are always things that we can pay attention to if we just keep our antenna up. Certainly you want to be on the lookout for any changes in the low-hanging fruit we'll deal with first, any changes in behavior in terms of anger, drug use, uh, in increased alcohol use, irresponsible behavior, any talk of getting even, all these things are red flags. You want to look for a, if there's a change in the workplace, sometimes a demotion. These are things that uh, impact on a person to varying degrees. And it really goes to the core of what we call their resilience. There's some people who are more resilient, they can take hits, other people less so. So by, again, paying attention to these different signs and signals, and we can walk through, let me just actually see if I can. Okay, there's, I want to be able to speak about one or two without pulling on a thread that'll take us to a four-day seminar. One thing to pay attention to is let's look at relationships, boundaries, and borders. That's a very good way to gauge a person's emotional health. And because 
as we said in the beginning, the quality of our emotional health and the quality of our relationships go hand in hand. I'm always on the lookout to look at this person's relationships. Certainly when it comes to dating and people ask me, is this person stable or not? I want to know what their relationships look like, particularly with their parents. Now, it doesn't mean that everyone who has a fractured relationship with a parent, we should stay away from. Sometimes a parent doesn't make it too easy. But if Everyone in their lives is the problem. If, you know, this person doesn't understand them, this person gave them a raw deal, this person doesn't respect them, that's something to pay attention to. A emotionally healthy person is going to be able to maintain healthy relationships. There's just no way to get around the math. Of course, we're all entitled to those couple of people in our lives who make us miserable. We call them friends and family. That's okay. <laughs> but if everyone is a problem, this comes into play a lot when we do hiring. If the person comes to you, the potential employee, and says, oh, this person, XYZ, they didn't understand me. ABC company, no one took my idea seriously, and so on. If they're always blaming and never taking responsibility, never assuming any accountability, that's someone whose emotional health is in question. And certainly uh, the potential for violence doesn't mean that violence is going to turn outward. It may turn inward. That's when we look at different personality traits. But again, I would look at the quality of the relationships to give us a snapshot of their overall emotional health. Mm. Excellent, David. And this is also a big part of part three of your book, where you're talking about building a psychological profile and where you actually also share some of the common language patterns that are usually shared by people who suffer from emotional illness and which they share. So something like what you just explained, when blame is always put towards the outside and when all the relationships seem to be very difficult, this is something to watch out for. And then, of course, there's this is always as a writer, I've also published some fiction work, I'm particularly interested in the genre of thrillers now for some of my more creative work, the spotting of personality disorder order types and the dead giveaways of mental illness that you talk about in your book. Now, this, of course, not only for somebody who is looking at this from a more creative artistic perspective to learn about character, but also in daily life as a really valuable tool to have. And whether you're looking at hiring somebody, whether it's new people coming into your life, you've already mentioned some of them, but what is an absolute dead giveaway seen within context, of course, of mental illness? Yes, and that's you're raising a good point. It should always be seen in context. And we don't obviously labeling somebody as being mentally unwell. That's it doesn't mean that they're a bad person, of course. It just might mean someone who you might not want to spend too much time with in a dark alley. So one thing to pay attention to is the use of absolute language. Because if we looked at what we said before, and that is that the people the ego has as a desire to paint the world in very definitive black and white terms by carving out the rest of the world hardens our identity. And the bigger the ego, the less healthy the person is. That's just the psychological math because let me just take a step back. We'll explain the psychology and then we'll go deep into the question. Self-esteem refers to the degree to which I love myself and feel worthy of good things in life. It means that a person generally has self-acceptance and they feel worthy of connection, and to give and receive love. The less worthy a person feels, the less they love themselves, the ego now is going to take over to compensate for feelings of guilt, inferiority, and shame. That's the job of the false self, is to project an image of what we're not. So the bigger the ego, 
the less emotionally healthy we are because the less we like ourselves. And it's the ego that blocks perspective is synonymous with my ability to see, accept, and respond to my world. When a person loses perspective, it means they've lost sanity. The ego blocks perspective. And once again, as we mentioned just earlier before, just to retie up that thread, when the ego is engaged, we see a projection of our own wants and needs rather than what is. So then, if I'm able to see reality clearly, it means I take me out of the picture. We know people who are egocentric. Everything revolves around them. And no matter what the conversation is, it comes back to them. They connect the dots to make the world about them. The more a person paints their world in black and white terms, generally speaking, the less healthy they are because it points to an underlying insecurity. Because again, if I love myself, I accept myself, I'm okay with the fact that I could be wrong, that I don't know something, that I don't know you, I don't know the situation, but the less I like me, the more certain I need to be. I need to forge an unknown into a known. I need to be able to predict, predict and control my world. That means everything is going to be put in the category of always, completely, totally, never, and you're going to see it in the language that the person uses. And we know people like this, right? They Everything is painted in absolutes. So that is one thing to pay attention to in terms of the the language that we use and if they allow for the possibility of nuances and a mm. nuanced language or everything has to be your either and we very almost childish either all good or all bad everything's black everything's white there's no gradations there's no gray and thank you for illuminating that david there's also something else that has really caught my attention and that's today we use terms like you can go anywhere on Reddit or Quora or any of these forums or any articles, opinion pieces, but we use terms like sociopath and psychopath quite often wrongly. Could you define these two terms for us and what are actual real signs that somebody is indeed a sociopath or a psychopath? Terrific question. So first is Antisocial personality disorder includes both sociopathy and psychopathy, sociopaths and psychopaths. Those are really got bad people. Stay far away. Now, they are often conflated, confused with someone who suffers with narcissistic personality disorder. And what I'm fond of telling people is a narcissist, we're always quick to label people a narcissist because they won't do everything that we want. Our narcissist is not somebody who won't do what you want. You're so self-absorbed, I can't believe. No, in order to rise to that bar, there are certain criteria that need to be met. The distinction now between a narcissist and a sociopath or psychopath is very clear. First off, sociopathy and psychopathy, there's a lot of confusion in the literature. There's a lot of overlap because there's not always there's not really a clear consensus. Generally speaking, the latest research seems to say, to say that sociopathy, a sociopath is something that is more a function of upbringing and a learned behavior, whereas psychopathy is something wrong with the wiring. Person was born this way. And there are differences, people who are psych suffer with uh, Psychos, excuse me, people who are psychopaths have an issue more with impulse control. They can be less thought through, whereas a sociopath is really the most dangerous because they are so practiced at coming across as a human being. Mm -hmm. And the most important thing for people to understand in recognizing a sociopath is that a person without a conscience can exist. It makes us feel, talk about security and safety, it makes us feel better to know that everyone has a conscience, they're good deep down inside, 
and maybe they are, but if they're a sociopath, you can't count on it. The a, socio, a sociopath uses people as tools, as vehicles. They don't see other people as people, which means then that they don't have a fear of disconnection. They don't have a fear of they don't have a they don't have general fears in the first place. So they can be the most dangerous. And so. What's really interesting here for me is what you just said. Sociopaths, they do not have a conscience. And of course, we tend to operate from what our own baseline is. And sometimes it's so hard for people to understand that there's actually people out there who do not function the way you do. And things that would make you feel absolutely horrible and you would never even consider doing them for somebody else that is com wired completely differently, it's not an issue. And I think that's the first thing, you know, we need to get over in order to also protect ourselves, keep our boundaries up, to realize others don't operate like we do. And in the worst case scenario, when it's somebody who's indeed a sociopath, that can have really horrible detrimental effects on our own well-being. With regard to psychopaths, what about what's often talked about the highly functioning psychopath who actually, at least that's spoken about in some of these articles that I read, unless you don't cross them, they won't cross you. They're just going about their own lives and they're just, they're just wired differently. And I'm not talking about a full-blown psychopath, but just a regular garden variety psychopath. Right. Yeah. So the it, what we do know is that both psychopaths and sociopaths, most of sociopaths, uh, occupy the highest levels across every arena because they are often intelligent mm -hmm. and they have very good people skills. They lack genuine empathy, meaning in order for me to feel your pain, I can't be buried in my own, right? If for anybody, right? As, as If it's like you ever get a toothache and all the world's problems go out of the window because you're in pain, it's very hard to focus on someone else's. So someone who is in ex extreme emotional pain is too equally self-absorbed. You take that to an extreme and all these people, they're in pain, whether they acknowledge it consciously or not, or to someone else or not, they're in extreme pain. So they're just unable to connect, to focus on anyone else. They are absorbed in their own pain. So no doubt they, they are practiced at feigning empathy of being concerned, but a couple, there are many things to pay attention to that we cover, but just too briefly here is that they will promise a lot and rarely deliver. Now, they may go out of their way and do some seemingly big magnanimous gesture, but that's only to play the long game because they want to curry your trust and to get a favor from you. But you'll also see that they have very few and probably non-existent real relationships, meaning they are friends with the world and close to nobody. So mm -hmm. there is, and again, now there are people who have unfortunately fractured relationships with the world and they're not, doesn't make them a sociopath, but going back to relationships, that is a key indicator, which by the way, we know the reverse as well, that if we want to work on own emotional health and there are relationships that we are, find ourselves that are fractured or estranged from, if we're able to make those whole or at least do what's necessary to try to repair them, irrespective of whether relationship is repaired or not, we will de facto feel better about ourselves.
100%. And you actually hear a lot these days about individuals who have sought help, for example, also via psychedelics, iboga or ibogaine, the active compound comes to mind and where all of a sudden they're cracked open outside of their normal functioning patterns and thought loops. And after that experience, I've heard they actually seek to repair the relationships in their lives, sometimes even decades back, just right. on interesting side note. It is, but it goes to the core. If you look at the 12-step programs, they all have forgiveness and making the wrongs into rights and trying to clean up the past. Because as long as we're walking around with guilt and shame that we can do something about, we carry a great emotional weight that might otherwise be unnecessary. And when we're able to, and again, it doesn't matter whether or not the relationship is repaired. It's whether or not we are able to be responsible to acknowledge our own stuff within it that helps to heal us. And I think in one of your books, you actually also talk a lot about self-healing. That's of God or your therapist. Wow. You've done your homework. <laughs> I do. Yeah. And we, are, we talk about the importance in that book about being able to ego negation is take the false eye out of it and apologize. And sometimes it makes sense. We talk about our own emotional health and relationships. It's not always about fractured relationships. It's about abusive relationships. And what can be difficult for a good number of people is to draw that boundary line, but to keep people out who should be out, not just about letting people in who should be in. And we think sometimes that boundaries are meant to keep people away. They're not. Every relationship needs boundaries, and boundaries are meant to define our personal sense of space, responsibility, and obligation. Every healthy relationship needs boundaries, and a person who suffered with a trauma or who doesn't have clear boundary lines are going to find that the relationships are just not healthy, and being able to draw those lines in a healthy way is just undeniably valuable to our own emotional health as well as to that relationship. 100% David and that's also something I can relate to very much as a young woman I did not have great boundaries it took a long time to learn to get comfortable with it I'm even keeled and very happy with that now and happy to hey this is my boundary here and no further nowadays however for people who are still on that path and of course language is a crucial aspect of beginning to draw boundaries actions aside what are some ways that we may use to communicate if we're not really used to it yet and not quite comfortable yet with showing up our boundaries what's some language that we can use to get that process started when we're in communication with others Sure. I love that question. Here's the thing. You're with somebody who either respects your boundaries or who doesn't. If they respect your boundaries, no thank you should be just fine. Here's the thing. Let's assume we're dealing with boundary breachers because look, it can be very uncomfortable for us to assert ourselves because if we understand at the core psychologically what's happening is we're all wired for connection. We're wired to be able to to have loving relationships. The surrogate to connection is control, which is why we find that all personality disorders have the same underlying thread. That is control. They seek to control the relationship because unfortunately, due to their limited emotional or mental capacity, they cannot connect in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. So they use control as a surrogate. So a person who doesn't respect your boundaries is somebody who is not going to hear words, meaning it's if you park your car in a bad area, leaving a sign that says, please don't steal my car is not going to do a lot. 
If the person's not going to steal your car, they don't need a sign. And if they plan on stealing it, a sign's not going to do anything. The only way that you can draw that boundary line with confidence is by backing it up with consequences. Meaning, this doesn't work for me. If this happens, I'm going to do this. And now we try to save people from the consequences of their own behavior and we let them step over into our space. It can be very uncomfortable for somebody to draw that boundary line because if we fundamentally want connection, this person who has a problem drawing that line fears disconnection. So if I say to you, you know what, this doesn't work for me, that's a fear because you may reject me, you may walk away. Now, if I have an insecurity, low self-esteem, if I'm vulnerable, I don't wanna push you away, that's why I let you into my space in the first place. So I need to be able to draw that line with confidence and know that you're rejecting that consequence is not a rejection of me. Meaning that one of the most powerful messages I think for people to appreciate is that, as you had said earlier, is that how people treat us really is a confession of their own character. It's a reflection of their own self-esteem and self-worth. It says nothing about us unless we make it about us. Mm -hmm. So if someone doesn't like me because I'm drawing a clear boundary line, that's on them. And when we do that, and when we appreciate the fact that my self-worth doesn't hinge on whether or not you like me or not, we are emotionally free. But as long as I am dependent on you in order for me to feel good about me, I'll never draw that line clearly. And I certainly won't institute consequences if you step over it. Yes, absolutely. And as long as we need definition from the out, impulses, input from the outside in order to define ourselves, we're never going to be really free to define ourselves. We're always going to be slaves to the outside input and also taking responsibility for the emotions of others who might be unhappy with our boundaries at any given time. That, again, puts us in a kind of bondage that as a really free and self-actualized being, we do not wish to be in. Um, David, I know we're pressed for time. I'm super grateful for you to make time on your busy schedule. So I want to button this super fascinating conversation up with a question I ask all my guests, and that's about the practices that have helped you most enhance your life mentally, physically, and or spiritually. Would you be willing to share something with us? Sure. And that's an easy one. Mindfulness. It it is so powerful because as we spoke about, being able to be present, being able to really connect with the person you're speaking to the world, to the environment, gives you information. It gives you data. But when we're consumed with anxieties and fears, we're not able to fully connect and to be fully present, which is why I spend so much time in the book when we talk about emotional health, identifying those traits and those qualities. And we spoke about with the ego is that when somebody denigrates the world around them, when they label, when they judge, they are certainly not mindful because mindfulness requires a degree of vulnerability to let go of preconceived notions, of cognitive biases, and just to be. But for our own emotional health, for our relationships, to be able to read other people, it requires us to be fully present. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that, David. And people who wish to learn more about you or connect with you, where can they do so? Let's see. They can go to my website, which I should know the name. I think it's drdavidlieberman.com, and they can find the book on wherever fine books are sold. Absolutely. And I'll make sure to put all of that information with the correct links into the show notes as well. David, such a pleasure to connect with you. Thank you for sharing your insights. I love picking your big, beautiful brain. This was wonderful. Thank you for being a guest on the Superhumanized podcast. 
It's a terrific podcast and you're an amazing talent. Thank you so much for the time. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Evolution. 